everybody. It's Microphones of Madness. I'm Rodney. Over there, Steve. Hey. And it might sound a little bit different this week. I am back in the sanctum. And it's it's good to be back. It's good to have you back. It's good to look at your um your profile icon instead of the drop ceiling. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> this monitor is too large for a camera, so I don't have a camera here. Today we are talking the 1980 Bill I'll Murray in, film. I'll be in solidarity with you. There you go. <laughs> The 1980 Bill Murray film, Where the Buffalo Roam. Uh, Bill plays Hunter S. Thompson. It is loosely isn't even really the right word. It is romanticizedly somewhat influenced by the eulogy for uh, Oscar Acosta. The Banshee Screams for Buffalo Meat. Yeah, I and, guess. <laughs> no, it's, it is definitely loose. Uh, if you're looking for like accurate biographical portrayal in in Murray's performance, yeah, he kind of he pretty much acts like Hunter Thompson. Hunter Thompson was actually an executive consultant on this film. Uh, he hated the script. Uh, he wrote, rewrote parts of it with Bill Murray and then bounced out of there and said, fuck you guys. Yeah, there's like, on the Wikipedia page, I think it's a Wikipedia page for the movie, it mm. talks about how like Bill Murray got obsessed with the role and kind of inhabited the role um, to the point where he pissed everyone off around him. Right, the uh, the fifth season of Saturday Night Live uh, started a few months after this film stopped filming or completed filming, and Murray was still stuck in the character. Yeah, God, that would probably be really insufferable. Um, some of the people, some of the producers and writers at Saturday Night Live at the time said, you wanted to go talk to Bill, but you ended up talking to Hunter Thompson. Right. So... Uh, I'm going to guess by that behind-the-scenes notion that Murray's portrayal was accurate, but the events are the version of Hunter Thompson he plays is almost a caricature. Yeah, well, it's a romanticized version of, of Hunter Thompson. Mm -hmm. um, as seen through the eyes of Hunter Thompson as he rewrote the script. Parts uh, of the script. Yeah, it sounds like... If, like once again relying on Wikipedia that uh the thing was like just slapped together from all sides the the director um had no idea what he was doing mm -hmm. um, it was his first film and like he had no plan or anything right um he kind of thought he was gonna go in there gonzo style and and make a film right um the structure of the film is not a coherent narrative uh there is bookend pieces where Hunter Thompson is composing the, the eulogy for uh, Acosta, who in this film is named uh, Laszlo, is the last name. Well, interestingly enough, they didn't want, because Peter Boyle was playing um, Laszlo, mm -hmm. they, they, they decided to um, fictionalize the man who's a Latino mm -hmm. or was, um, and they didn't want 
um, an Anglo playing a Latino part. Correct. So they um, they switched it up and made Laszlo white. Yes. <laughs> Which they is made, a, they 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 portrayed Oscar Acosta as being Laszlo, who was a white guy. Right. So, um, more more famous. The more famous piece, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Uh, Thompson portrayed uh, Acosta as being a Samoan. Yes. Well, I don't know if he portrayed him, but he describes him that way. Right. He describes him as a Samoan. And actually in the eulogy, uh, the Banshee Screams for Buffalo Meat, he goes into a brief anecdote about the uh, publication of Fear and Loathing where libel lawyers got involved. And it seemed that Acosta's primary objection was that he was his identity was concealed throughout the book. <laughs> you know, that's like the one bit of Hunter S. Thompson that I've actually bothered to read. Mm -hmm. uh, full disclosure, I'm not a fan of Hunter Thompson. No, I, I'm not part of the cult of, of Hunter S. Thompson. So um, take from that what you will. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I did read Fear and Loathing because I went to college. <laughs> it's required you worked on our culture. <laughs> right. It's required reading to go to when you go to college. And uh, I would want to have my identity concealed, too. I mean, there's a lot of actionable things that happen in that book. Right. There's a lot of actionable things that happened in the book, and the libel lawyers didn't have any of it. But Acosta wanted his face on the cover and those, those, his objections were being depicted as a 300-pound Samoan and not having his face on the dust jacket. Weird. Because, which blew uh, the minds of the libel lawyers and was very amusing to Hunter Thompson. Which actually kind of is in sync with the way Laszlo is played in, in, this, in this movie. Oh, yes. Um, now, I, was, I will say uh, before 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 we get into like the actual characters, I will say that uh, this film, even though it's not particularly well directed or well written, is very much less cartoony than Johnny Depp's depiction in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Never saw it. It it, it, it is over the top. It's Johnny Depp doing what Johnny Depp does. Right. So yeah. So it was Captain Jack as Hunter S. Thompson. This was prior to he played he played in Fear and Loathing yeah. prior to that, but yeah, but yeah, I, mean, I mean, you know, Johnny Depp, asshole that he is, has this way of Johnny Depp disappearing into the role, and you see the character, but all of his portrayals are really over the top. Yeah, I think I think the Ninth Gate is one of the few things I've seen him in where his where his portrayal is very, you know, almost mm -hmm. like every other actor i was gonna say crybaby oh see i didn't watch crybaby oh see there you go you should watch crybaby crybaby's a good movie mm -hmm. we should have watched crybaby <laughs> no because the whole point of this is to watch bad film <laughs> with the exception of my head motherfucker yeah we do watch a lot of bad films all right so um, good books, bad be... films. It's a new tagline. I don't know where to begin with this one because it really—I I saw 
I did see it a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't, I didn't remember anything from it except for Bill Murray shooting a fax machine. Right. Um, which kind of tells you what kind of film it is. Cause I've seen most of the things that we've been watching. I've seen before mm-hmm. and have memories of it bad or good. I, I remember the films. Mm-hmm. This one, not so much. Um, and it, that might be the state of mind I was in when I saw it, but I kind of think I saw it on HBO before I started fucking with shit. What, so, during the era of the Beastmaster channel? Yes. So um, there was Beastmaster so and... <laughs> and, I re- and I remembered Beastmaster. <laughs> right. And so you have just, fond childhood memories of Beastmaster. Yeah, so I'm just thinking this movie was just so horrible that when I was a kid, I just like bl- just blocked it because why would I bother remembering it? Right. Exactly. And and it has up and also up until this point, the movies that you see with Bill Murray in them were Stripes, Meatballs, mm-hmm. Ghostbusters. No, Ghostbusters was after. So right. we have stripes, stripes and meatballs. So, but still that kind of same vein. You had a Bill Caddyshack. You had a Bill Murray kind of character. Right. And uh, Hunter S. Thompson was not Bill Murray's normal character. And that might have thrown me for a loop when I was a kid, too, because I might have watched it um, wanting to watch a Bill Murray movie. Mm-hmm. And it really, it isn't a Bill Murray movie. No, no. It's uh, it. I, I think I think this film and the Life Aquatic, probably and uh, Lost in Translation are like the three Bill Murray movies that stand out as being atypically Bill right. Murray movies. Yeah, but the Life Aquatic's a good film. The Life Aquatic is a very good film, and maybe Lost in Translation. I've never seen. <laughs> right, I've never seen Lost in Translation <laughs> either. I hear it's a good film, but the Life Aquatic, I, I really enjoyed that film. Right. Uh, so mostly because of Bill Murray. So, but we know Bill Murray is capable of not being Bill Murray. Right. It's the whole point of that. So, and and honestly, he was was pretty good doing what he did. From what I know of Hunter S. Thompson and his erratic behavior, Bill Murray pulled it off fairly well. There was like a little bit of um of me thinking that. Hunter Hunter S. Thompson was just like kind of doing what he did because it got a rise out of people. And I don't know if that's exactly how Hunter S. Thompson operates or operated. Mm-hmm. That, I mean, that whole Mary Prankster kind of thing. Yeah, he might have been more of just a, a genuinely weird guy. Mm-hmm. And Bill Murray kind of came came off as, yeah, like a Mary Prankster, like he was putting on an act. Right. Right. That, that, that there was a serious journalist there behind all the antics. Right. And uh, yeah. And I think Hunter S. Thompson really was like um, halfway crazy. Mm-hmm. Half crazy. Now I will say that there wasn't a piece of scenery in that film that didn't get chewed on at one point. No. Uh, oh, Peter, Peter Boyle was just completely <laughs> psychotic in this film. He really was. Um, he was really good too. I mean, he, he I bought his character one hundred percent, even though he was like an over the top like freak, right? Um, I totally bought his character, and even and he's really the only character who has an arc. 
Mm-hmm. Hunter S. Thompson kind of has an arc in the film, um, but it is only reflected off of Laszlo. Right. And what I mean to say is that he's like the same the entire way, mm-hmm. the entire film. He doesn't change. There's no growth, right. no, no diminishing nothing. But he sees what Laszlo has become and rejects going over the top, I guess. And that's his growth, quote unquote. But without Laszlo, you know, he's just like the same guy throughout the whole film. Right, right. And really, this film is more about the character of Laszlo than it is Hunter Thompson. Hunter Thompson is kind of, he's he's the narrator. Right. He, he, he kind of just gets caught up in this wake really the whirlwind of Laszlo. Right. And, and that's really what it is. And rather than an overarching plot structure, it's told more or less as a series of vignettes throughout the time uh, Hunter and Laszlo knew each other in this, right. in this fictionalized universe. And it begins with Hunter late for a deadline and going to court with Laszlo. And he sits in the front row with his Bloody Mary and, and his bucket of ice. Right. Well, he's he's um he's writing a piece on Laszlo, right? Because Laszlo is right. this um, champion lawyer for mm-hmm. hippies. Right. So, he's this uh, he's this pro drug culture lawyer. He uh, takes apparently a lot of pro bono cases dealing with uh, drugs. Right. Cheap, cheap marijuana. Yeah. Right. Cheap marijuana arrests. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you know when Laszlo the, the, that first vignette that's like Laszlo I could you know he's a cool guy mm-hmm. um, he's like the kind of guy I would want on my side and and speaking of that vignette there was a cameo by uh, Craig T Nelson in that yeah there was there's cameos by a lot of people in there mm-hmm. uh, the guy who played uh, Niedermeyer from Animal House was in there yep. You might know him from Twisted Sister video fame, <laughs> but that's how the, that's how these all these movies were. It's that you know there yeah. were a certain group of character actors who went in every mm-hmm. movie by a certain actor. It was like a yeah, whole group. what's his name? Frank Bruno is that his name? I believe Kirby. Kirby. Frank Kirby. No, it's Bruno. Is his last name? Mm-hmm. Maybe he played a guy named Kirby. Ah. Anyway, um, he played the editor of the fictionalized Rolling Stone, mm-hmm. which is cool. Because, I mean, he did a really good job playing like this guy is supposed to be hip, but he's but like owns a business full of hippies, right? <laughs> and he has to like kind of like keep in line, right? And, <laughs> kind and, of be cool, but he can't be cool. Bruno Kirby, that's his name. Yeah, and yeah, he's got the um, he's got the whole whole shtick going on and then you know he's he's got all these hippies but hunter thompson is his like his prize yeah you know well, he puts up a- he puts up with a lot of thompson's bullshit because he's hunter thompson right. and-, and it really is bullshit i oh, mean he- i i really don't don't have any sympathy for the guy mm-hmm. not not the way he was portrayed in here i mean he was like just arbitrary random chaos Oh yeah, yeah. Kind of, almost kind of rock star, more rock star than than uh, counterculture. There's, there's not nearly as much drug use portrayed in this film. No, they smoke a lot in, of pot. 
We smoke a lot of pot, drink a lot of booze, and that's pretty much it. That's a bit of cocaine use in a car ride. Right. Um, But yeah, if if it's it's not fear and loathing, that's for damn sure. Yeah, where they're doing Um, everything under the sun. Right. They're not being chased by bats across the desert. Right. There's there's none of none of that weirdness is but it's like random, like he trashes a hotel room, you know. During the Super Bowl in seventy two. Right. He, you know, he gives like these expensive Super Bowl tickets to um, a couple of randos. Right. It's like, we'll give you this ticket for that bottle of wine. Right. And, but when it comes to like, like serious um, counter establishment stuff, he pulls back. So, he, I mean, he's got like all this, like, like you said, rock star uh, showmanship and it's all showmanship. Mm-hmm. When he when he breaks into the well, well that's Laszlo does that. Well, he's like in, in the psych ward, and he's like throwing a party in the psych ward, and he goes right. to a hotel, and he throws a party in the hotel, and you know, yay! And he turns, you know, he turns um the 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 jet for the for the um, adjuncts on the presidential campaign trail mm-hmm. um, into a party. Hey, well, it was um, already a party. Yeah, but he kind of like makes it go over the top and it, but it's all showmanship but when it comes down to the real shit he like doesn't do anything for anyone um he you know there's like uh lasso gets involved in revolutionary gun running mm-hmm. um you know like uh funding like the sandinistas or something mm-hmm. and uh yeah he doesn't do anything about that he pulls back so, and I guess that's why I think that it was a bit of acting on Hunter S. Thompson's part for his like shtick, because like when it came down to it, he never put his money where his mouth was. Mm-hmm. And then you know a lot of people do that. I'm not going to say that I don't do that. Um, I would never run guns for the Sandinistas. <laughs> <laughs> So maybe I'm a bit of a hypocrite, but I don't have that reputation of being like this, like counter cultural icon. Right. I I think Hunter Thompson as uh, occupies this space is almost a folk hero. Yeah. He's like Johnny Appleseed for yippies. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I, I, I think, I think really once we start seeing, we go through, and he's doing this crazy stuff. He's trying to cover serious stories. Um, he gets bumped down to sports journalism and decides to cover the Super Bowl. Um, he doesn't like sports. But he doesn't He doesn't give a shit about it. Um, so he, he goes about his own thing, and he plans on just watching the game on television. Right. I don't know if he was on the bumped. Radio. I don't know if he was bumped down. I think at that point, because at that point he was, like, really famous. And I think mm-hmm. it was just they wanted to have his style because um, obviously he's the the first of the Gonzo journalists. Um, they wanted that to be hip and cover such a square event. I think I think that's where Rolling Stone came off doing that because you know he ended up following Nixon around for Rolling Stone. So, mm-hmm. yep. Uh, I'm sorry, the candidate, right? Well, that that became fear and loathing on, on the, the campaign, campaign trail. Yeah, seven. I think that was seventy two. 
Yeah. Which is the final act of this particular movie. You have the <clears throat> courtroom is the first act. The second act is Super Bowl 72. Right. And, then and then the, the final act is the campaign trail. The campaign trail. Um, and Laszlo gets involved every time something happens at the end of every act that pulls Laszlo out of the film. Yeah, there's a... And you well, think he's either dead or in jail. He was in jail at the end of the first act. Yeah. And um, he's been in there for quite a while, and then I guess he got out and he disappeared. And he yeah. shows up at the Super Bowl. He has this, like, almost supernatural ability to track Hunter Thompson down wherever he is. Yeah. Well, it's um, it's interesting because during... He does, like, this little interlude where he he's um at a college... Um, mm-hmm. giving a, a guest lecture at a college, you know. Yeah. Um, something like Milo or you know, wanted to do or shit like that. Mm-hmm. And um one of the one of the kids asks him like who the fuck Laszlo is and is is he a figment of his imagination? Right. Right. And really the way Laszlo's portrayed in this film, especially as it progresses, he is kind of like this uh this figment of Thompson's imagination. He's almost like this. Um, if I go too far, this could be me. Mm-hmm. You know, if I if I really just let myself go and and go out of control, I'll I'll be running guns for Colombians or start my own fucking weird Manson like cult mm-hmm. in the fucking desert. Right. And the way the movie presents it, it's almost like he's not a real like Laszlo's not a real person. It's almost like he's an imaginary friend. Well, yeah, he shows up and other than him rolling into the restaurant bar with the Nixon mask on, which was kind of funny. Yeah. Uh, nobody really pays him any attention at all. No, they don't. Uh, except for, um, the, the Colombians. Right. Uh, in the final act, he just walks right out onto the tarmac, gets on the candidate's plane. No questions. Uh, <laughs> the only person does, that says anything is the guy sitting next to Thompson, and he's like, "The seat's taken." Right, and, and Needle and Niedermeyer. Right, and just ignores him. Yeah, and, and that you know, that might just be a function of shitty writing. Not <laughs> possibly, uh, but I, it, I, it I, might be. It might be in a way to express a, a trait of the character that you know he just walks into a room and. You know, he can, he owns the room and he can do whatever he wants. Yeah, it could be. I don't know if the movie because that's is... that's the way that's kind of the way that uh, Thompson portrays Acosta in in the eulogy is a, the type of guy who could just do whatever he wanted. Um, he told a story in the eulogy about uh, going out at two o'clock in the morning and setting a judge's lawn on fire, and instead of you know <laughs> running away. It was a judge that he had had a disagreement with. I think he lost a case. And he, he grabbed Hunter, went out 2 o'clock in the morning, covered this guy's lawn in gas, and set it ablaze. And instead of running away, he stood out in the street screaming at the judge through an open window that he was looking out at. <laughs> like, yeah, no, the, I did this. The real guy, the real Acosta, has like this mythical um, life of his own as well. Mm-hmm. Apparently he like disappeared in South America, like amp- like uh, 
Ambrose Bierce or something. Mm-hmm. And he would, he's, uh, he's, not, he's presumed dead. We don't know if he's dead or not. The man is actually presumed dead and probably right. more likely is, but there's no body. There's no death certificate. He just mm-hmm. like, like Bierce just disappeared. Right. Right. Um, he, he, he had a habit of disappearing throughout his life. Um, uh, according to Thompson in that uh, he would go off for days and days at a time, blasted out of his mind on acid. And then he would come back with and pick back up where he left off, work for a little while doing this, that, or the other thing, and then disappear again, go get blasted and then come back. And he was kind of in and out just like Laszlo was in the movie. He just kind of fell in and out of under Thompson's life. But uh, the the Banshee Screams for Buffalo meat also contains the whole God's own prototype uh, speech in discussion. Okay. And I was kind of hoping that he would go into that speech during the the college, but he kind of he kind of did with the whole he was a mutant uh, yeah, bit because that, that was part of that that uh, bit as well. Yeah, that might have been. I thought that was just Bill Murray is con- contractually obligated to give a speech like that in every film he appears in. No, no, that was that was probably that was probably the most accurate piece. We're, we're, we're Americans. Quotes. We're mutants. Yeah. <laughs> what would you say about uh, drugs and alcohol? Would they make me a great writer? Yeah, I mean, well, I can't really speak for everybody else, but uh, it worked for me. <laughs> now, um, Hunter S. Thompson might be responsible, directly or indirectly, for the shitty state of journalism today. Uh, possibly. Uh, because gonzo journalism, I looked it up because, you know, you hear tell of gonzo, gonzo journalism. It's a famous thing. What exactly is gonzo journalism? Well, apparently it's put it's like um postmodern journalism. You put your own point of view into the story. Right. It's, so, it's objective rather than objective right. reporting. Effectively, you you have turned writing journalism into an opinion piece. Right. And and I think that maybe somebody like Thompson, who is actually a good writer, um, I'm not gonna argue that he isn't a good writer, because that's mm-hmm. just that's just wrong. Um can pull something like that off. Right, right. Not so much anyone else. Right. Well, I mean, <laughs> there's there's this bit about it where it, it is an opinion piece. It is subjective, but it does try he does try to get at some sort of truth as he sees it. Right. As and he sees so, it. So 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 there is also this kind of meandering analysis going on of the events that are occurring. Right. But I think like subsequent practitioners of the Gonzo school of journalism um, are just pretenders to the throne. And um, I think like now, unless you like are writing straight hard news, um, Mm -hmm. you're almost required to to write like this. Mm hmm. Um, it's like blog journalism before there were blogs. Ah, kinda, kinda. I mean, it's 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 definitely 
I'd have to read more of his articles. Like I said, I read bits and pieces here and there. One of the things I, I like about Thompson is his style. I I like the way he writes. Right. Well, I'm not going to say he right. wasn't a good writer. Right. But I think you have a point where there comes a point where there's just this pastiche, gonzo pastiche, as it were. <laughs> Pretty soon we'll have, like, gonzo punk. Oh, God. Gonzo. <laughs> but a lot of it was, it was... But I think a lot of it was a bit of Thompson's own drive to get what he thought the piece was printed rather than things going heavily edited. Because a lot of Hunter Thompson's work is not edited because there wasn't time. <laughs> That's true. He definitely he, like cut his deadline super short, and they, and they really made a point of that in the right. film. Mm -hmm. And it's it's something that's mentioned. Uh, I know you were doing some research on Gonzo journalism. Uh, he's actually quoted as, "I want to get my pieces in uh, post after the time it's required to edit them, but in plenty of time for them to make it to press." And and really, so he, he's trying he's trying to get the pure experience of whatever he's covering. You have to be good to do that. Mm -hmm. You you can't just like write a piece of shit, a semi opinion piece, and well you can because that's what Fox News is, but for actual news, you know it has to. Facts are important, right? And, and Hunter Thompson, I don't think he played hard and loose with the facts. He might have like couched it um, from his opinion, right? Well, the campaign, the fear and loathing on the campaign trail is fact. I mean, you know, he was on the press junket. He followed right. the candidate around, went to the different speeches and whatnot, and heard what he had to say. But he also put in his own opinions of Nixon from, you know, watching him. Right. You know, and it's like, it's... In a lot of ways, Thompson's style was writing uh, on-the-spot reporting. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's like on Tuesday, you know, is, other than the facts. And then he's – because you see this a lot when, when um, you have news anchors and reporters on the scene in the digital age. And they are sitting there and there's nothing going on. But they're on the air, and that right. mic is hot, and they have to come up with something. They have to, they right? They have to ramble on about the color of the shoes, or, or the, you know, right? Um, the crap, like yeah, it's almost like a color commentator uh, in a football game, right? And that's probably the closest thing, you know, in real life practice to actual Gonzo, I guess, with the exception that Thompson, because he he writes about it after the fact. But he tries to capture the moment of being there. Gets a little, gets, philosophizes a little, not editorializes, but philosophizes. And well, I, I think that's see. one of the differences is is the philosophizing rather than editorializing. Right, and I, I think a lot of editorialize. I think a lot of people focus on uh, the drug use mm -hmm. because I mean it's there. 
Um, yes, the heavy drinking. The... I mean, it's like over the. It's it's like larger than life drug use, mm-hmm. and like you you use the words rock star. It's it is like that, um, right. and that overshadows what he was able to accomplish as a journalist. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that a lot of the people who who partake of the Gonzo school of journalism um, go that route. <laughs> Right, um, which is you know kind of hackneyed mm-hmm. and and cliched because not everyone can be a Hunter S. Thompson or a Lemmy Kilmister or, or Truman a Keith, Capote or Keith Moon or whatever what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, so, some people are Harry Reasoner, <laughs> right? Some people are Walter Cronkite. Yeah. So I mean, and and. His, I guess, his reputation is is larger than um, is good for it. If that makes any sense, it it precedes him, and people want to emulate um, action, like what they see of his actions, rather than um, any substance that right. that he that he had. Right. They they they. That's one of the things a lot of people. Uh, miss out on and i think that that carries over to lots of things in the in the entertainment field um well you 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 join a band and and you know play music and stuff because you want to be you know keith moon and and all the rolling stones and the who and all of these guys you want to live that lifestyle right and some people become writers because they want to be they want to live Hemingway's lifestyle or, you know, emulate all sorts of, you know, famous people rather than living their own authentic experience with whatever craft it happens to be. Right. And I, I would agree. And I think that for Thompson and the others in that particular style of journalism, you know, they were not trying to emulate every they weren't trying to be Walter Cronkite they weren't trying to be you know Bob Woodward you know they were trying to be you know th- themselves mm-hmm. and every time a, a culture comes out or a movement comes out and it tries to be themselves and people copy it then it kind of cheapens that movement and it's like look you know just be your own movement right you know, and I think I think that's kind of something that uh, Thompson was saying. You know, I think that a little bit of that came out in the uh, lecture segment where he was like, "Well, I can't speak for anybody else, but it worked for me." Right. You know, and it was unspoken. You know, do your own thing. Right. Which I would I would uh, hazard to guess that ninety nine percent of those kids did not pick that up. Right, they picked up. Well, it worked for him. Right, it and, and just the, the fact that you know he lit up the joint. Well, and, they were throwing and, joints at him. Right, he had one in his pocket <laughs> though, and he lit it up when she asked about the drugs, and the crowd, of course, went crazy, and they were throwing joints on the stage. And he, of course, you know, he's like, "Oh, free pot, yeah." <laughs> right. And it's you know, this shit's starting to get expensive. 
the antics are are funny. Mm -hmm. I I think I think the antics are funny. Uh, the the way, particularly when Laszlo and Thompson are together in the film, and they're just fucking with people. Yeah. Um, like the over the top way he looks for his wallet at the hotel. Okay. Oh, yeah, and he just starts out. dumping his luggage and he's searching the cab driver and he's he keeps looking at the uh the bellhops. Right. Oh yeah, and he like <laughs> accuses the bellhops of lifting his wallet. Right. <laughs> uh, later they're quarterbacking in the in the football game in his hotel room. Right. And he just like <laughs> pretty much kidnaps the room service guy to to play, you know, football with. And then the cleaning lady. You yeah. Know, Brings her in, and then later when he gives his room to the two guys that are outside, you know, the, it's like he, the cleaning lady and the and the room service guy have kind of like hooked up, <laughs> right? So it's like you know this this wave of chaos, and and I surrounds get, them. I get it because I've had um, weekends like that, mm -hmm. but as a lifestyle, <laughs> I, you know, I don't I don't think it's a very sustainable lifestyle. I mean, of course, you know it, it's also implied that he is surviving off the off the dole of the expense account. Yeah, well, and, and then you don't know how much of his life. I mean, out outside of you know his body of work and reputation, right? And you don't know was how over the top he was when he wasn't being over the top. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Right. And he doesn't seem quite as over the top in the segments where he's alone. Like, yeah, I mean, he does shoot a fax machine. He has trained a Doberman to bite the balls of a dummy when he says Nixon. Right, which is which is funny. <laughs> yeah, that's fun. He's actually and, funnier in the in the bookends mm -hmm. um, when he's alone, being um, more manic, I guess, right. than than psychotic. Right. Um, I think I think he really turns into psychotic when Laszlo's around. I, I, I yeah, think that they feed off of each other's psychosis. Yeah, and it, it's it's too bad that the film was handled the way it was in terms of the production of it, mm -hmm. uh, because I think you could have gotten an interesting portrait, or or you know more accurate portrait of mm -hmm. um of of the man and the times. Right. Than, than we were given. And and you know, it's not it's not the acting because like we like we said, Bill Murray's good in it. Um Peter Boyle's great in it. Right. Um, so it's it's you know, it's and they found know, a damn good Nixon impersonator. Yeah, they did. Um it's really just like they had this this diamond and they decided to just put it put it out without cutting it or curing it or whatever you do to diamond. Mm -hmm. I, I think I think you might be right there. This could have been probably one of, if not one of the best movies of the 80s. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's not could have been. Let's not go that far. Could I mean, have been. There were some good films in the 80s, man. There were some good films in the 80s, and, and Bill Murray was in some of them. He certainly was. <laughs> um, the Goonies. Yeah. 
but it maybe okay. Had, maybe had I'll, I'll, I'll give you this. I'll give you this. <laughs> maybe not in the, like the best movies of the eighties. You know, it's not you know Temple of Doom. You know, it's not Gremlins. Right. No, but I hear I hear you. It could have definitely been up there as a um, right. It, it could have had one of the know. more. Yeah, Something because not a lot of people know this film. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I totally forgot to say, Neil Young did the soundtrack for this film. Mm-hmm. I thought that I would mean, catch your attention right away. Yeah, it did. It did originally. Um, <laughs> but also the uh, the version that we watched yeah, it has, was, it has a lot of that out. cut out because uh, the production company didn't secure the mu- music rights yeah, that, video. yeah, that's strange. Like, if you look at the soundtrack to this film, the soundtrack kicks ass. Oh, yeah. Um, but none of the prints that were made, except for the, what was it, like the first generation of VHS, had the soundtrack right. on it because they yeah, they didn't pay for the, the music rights. They didn't right. I, think the there music was rights. A, I think there was a DVD release. No, there's, I guess the latest... There might be a Blu-ray. It might be a Blu-ray. The latest one, um, they they took care of all of that. Right. But and they it, it, the music. Right. But just just the fact that there's a version of this film without the Neil Young soundtrack and without all these great songs kicking mm-hmm. around um, just shows how much of a shit no one gave about this film in, on any level. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, it... All Along the Watchtower by Jimi Hendrix experience. Yeah, the, the, uh, the best version of All Along the Watchtower. That that song never gets old. I'm sorry. You could call me like a, a coot or whatever, but that song is fantastic and never gets old. Right. But it's also in like every film. And I will, you know, I'll get up and cheer every time it comes on. And I, I think there were a couple of Stone <laughs> songs and Jimmy Shelter was not one of them. <laughs> Yeah, so it's it's too bad. It it really is too bad. It's just like every level of this film um, was kind of bungled. Mm-hmm. It's it's really the film that could have been. Yeah, is is what what you can really talk about more than what the film actually was. Right, and it's not and, from and it wasn't from lack of trying. I'm, I mean, you know, Murray and Doyle they. They carried the whole movie, so they were trying. They came to work. Yeah, I mean, like it wasn't the acting. Or they were actually doing those drugs on the set, and right, none of the acting was was poor. None of like you know, it it was just like poorly made. Right, right. It Um, was right. It wasn't. It wasn't shot very well. It wasn't. It was shot more like a television commercial, really. Yeah, Um, you know the scripting. Was okay, and and really, yeah. the The best thing about the film is the performances themselves, rather than the script, the lighting, the direction. All of this right. other shit was crap. Well, and it's funny because that's the kind of stuff that, unless you are like in film school or somebody mm-hmm. tells you to look for this, who went to film school, right? You don't notice that shit mm-hmm. unless you're looking for it. You don't um, really notice sound design unless. Um, Unless you know it gets louder during fight scenes and then gets um then you can't hear the dialogue. Right. You know, so so 
you, the, the things that are wrong with it are stuff that you normally wouldn't even bother thinking about with with most films. Mm-hmm. But here, it, it all just stands out like a sore thumb because it's just nobody gave a shit. Right, right. I think they paid, what, uh, like a thousand bucks for the rights? Yeah, even like um, even Hunter S. Thompson was was surprised that they were making a film uh, for for this because he thought Fear and Loathing would be the one. Right, right. And, and that's the one everyone read. And that's the one that was the more popular work. It was the more well-received work. And it was the first work to be actually optioned for a film. They just never made it. Well, I think it was. I think it got like. Filmable. Yeah, it just kind of. I think there were three attempts to make the film that just pan didn't pan out. Right. Until finally you got to Johnny Depp's version like years later. But yeah, yeah, this is the this is the first film of based on Thompson's work to be made. Yeah, and it's too bad um, because it could have been a really good film. I think the the potential was all there. You just either had the wrong people doing stuff, or Mm -hmm. yeah, I think that's what it really that's what it was. They just like put the wrong people on it. Somebody dropped the ball. And... Yeah, the, the wrong people sat in the seats of power for this film. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't think it even could be a cult film because really there's not a lot redeemable about it. Right. With the exception of the performances. Yeah. I guess if you're like a huge Bill Murray fan, a Bill Murray completist. Right. You, you'd want this in your collection. Mm-hmm. Now, would you recommend this to people? Um, no. Absolutely not. No, absolutely not. I yeah. usually recommend it to people when something like Fear and Loathing comes up and they talk about Johnny Depp. And I said, well, you know, have you seen Where the Buffalo Room? And they're like, no, what's that? Yeah, I don't care. And I recommend, it, I recommend it specifically for Bill Murray and Peter Boyle and, and yeah. their performances in the film. Because I, I, in my mind, that's worth watching. When no one else is on this, when those two aren't on the screen, either solo or together, especially together, this movie is absolute garbage. I mean, it makes From Beyond look like, you know, best picture (laughs) material. Yeah, I I don't care enough about Hunter S. Thompson or his um, public reputation to um, want to defend it in any way. Mm -hmm. So I, I... if people want to go see Fair and Loathing, and that'll be their impression of Thompson. You have my blessing. I don't care. <laughs> the the <laughs> Warner Brothers cartoon version. Yeah, and, and that's so if you really want to know what the man was like, read Doonesbury or something. Right. Read. Yeah. Yeah. We we wow. We got all this way without even mentioning Doonesbury, and there is a Hunter Thompson figure in throughout Doonesbury, and he's one of the best characters in Doonesbury. Duke, right? Is it Duke? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Based on the Raul Duke persona. Been a been a while since I since yeah. I read Doonesbury, but yeah. So I mean, yeah, go read Doonesbury. Mm-hmm. Like a collected Doonesbury. Yeah. Yeah, I always love those. That was one of my favorite comic strips. It, that and the really, Phantom. Doonesbury's good. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would. I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have an unpopular opinion here, and say that Doonesbury is superior to the far, not the far side, uh, Bloom County. Um, I'd probably agree with you. I think maybe after Reagan, Doonesbury kind of went downhill. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was when I was doing most of my reading of Doonesbury was the late eight, you know, the late Reagan era it, through the Clinton era. And because that was just a great time, I'm sure. I don't know if he's still doing Doonesbury. Um, I don't know. But I don't see. Here's here's another thing, and Hunter Thompson's work, you know, was you know you talked about the imitators and stuff like that, and that that vibe, you know, that was something that I think it was kind of unique to the Vietnam and the Nixon era of the American politics. Yeah, I, I you know. He, he didn't he wasn't as popular throughout the 80s during the Reagan era we went a different route with our well with similar types of commentary well also people liked Reagan for some mm-hmm. reason um and Nixon not so much and right. the Vietnam War was was hugely unpopular as opposed to operation Desert Storm which was post Reagan but mm-hmm. still. Um, we were a lot more gung ho as a nation in the eighties. We, yeah. you know, uh, we had shifted to the right. Yeah, times uh, had gotten weird, and they stayed weird, and it got to be the new normal. And yeah. throughout the eighties, it you know the weirdness of being a right wing country was normal. It was okay. Capitalism was good. Communism was bad. Um. You know, I guess you could say there are parallels. And I I think I mentioned this to you after last week's show when we were doing some early prep work for this one that I kind of wish he was around now to comment on the current weirdness. I wish there was anybody around now who had the balls to speak out. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. And, And I... I think the time is ripe for not not an imitator, but a, a, an actual heir. I, I think the world has gotten to a, another peak weirdness, and it's time it's it's time for another character yeah, like the, that. The, pro- the problem is that his legacy has become so warped. Because mm-hmm. Hunter S. Thompson was a pretty liberal guy. Um, you know, he was like of that old libertarian where they actually cared about rights mm-hmm. um, instead of my rights. Right. Small and, L libertarian. Right. And uh, now I think he, because you still have that style. Every time I, I see one of those talking heads that I want to punch in the fucking face, um, like from Infowars, Alex Jones, or or any of those guys. I mean, that is what they're trying to do. 
They're, right, but they're they're but just they, but they pale so, limitations. But they do it so poorly, and they don't have the courage of their convictions. Mm-hmm. Whereas um, Hunter S. Thompson did, right, or at least I think he did, and um, and and he, I don't think his his purpose wasn't to like push an agenda. His purpose was to show how he fit, I guess, into. This this media circus. I mean, a lot of it was commentating on just like the the circus around him, mm-hmm. right? Right. Um, instead of um, you know yelling, um, and I think people have like misinterpreted gon the word Gonzo, right, to mean whacked out, drugged yeah. up, and or, or just like loud. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, but and, when when it really is heartfelt commentary right uh, which is why i said i think he ruined journalism right from the middle from yeah. the middle of the the maelstrom you know right yeah. but you know by the legend and and it, it is a legend really because what we you know there's some biographical work but most of what we know is autobiographical mm-hmm. so you know what we know about hunter thompson primarily is what he tells us Right. He's a legend in his own mind. Right. But also his position was he put him and and that's one of the, I think one of the things about Gonzo journalism is that you know the the reporter puts himself in the middle of the story. Right. Not necessarily, you know, like a lot of commentators like your Alex Jones types or like Don't call him my Alex Jones cuz I think he's a nut job. Well, he's definitely a nut job. He's the wrong kind of nut job. That's what it is. We're missing the right kind of nut job. That's right. That's what you know, there's a lot of clowns. There's a lot of clowns running around in this kind of, you know, the circus of the current weirdness. And, you know, that's that's just what I'm calling it from here on out. It's just the current weirdness. And... <laughs> You know, most folks who are who comment on it are folks on you know on the outside. You know, they're the the circus is they have a good bit of distance away, and they're looking at the circus from the cheap seats. Well, yeah, you're right. Um, you know, Rush Limbaugh sits in his fucking studio and, in Florida. And, yeah, and talks about you know what he watches on the news. Mm-hmm. That same thing with Alex Jones. For the most part, I guess, like because he's like um, been thrown out of a bunch of social media, mm-hmm. um, he's like going to places now, and right. getting thrown out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but but even so, he's like he's like yelling his uh, he's pushing an agenda when he's doing it. He's not like um, reporting news at all, right? I think I think the closest thing we have right now is microphones of madness. Well, that's a possibility, you know. <laughs> definitely, you know, Gonzo book reviewers and movie reviewers. <laughs> there you go. There's your Gonzo punk right there. Right there. Um, I think the closest thing that we have in the current weirdness is Dan Rather. Yeah. Dan fucking button down rather. Mm-hmm. He he's reporting from the outside because he's retired. 
but he's you know he was Dan Rather. I mean, he he's was right. He's, he's, he's he knows front lines, and yeah, and he knows what you know. He knows, he knows what, what the Oval bullshit. Office carpet smells like. Right. He knows what the bullshit is. Right. You know, and, and he's got that unique insight into it, and he has. So he has taken kind of kind of taken up that torch in in reporting news and facts and commenting on them in the structure of you know what this means for America, what this means right. for our society. Which is weird because Dan Rather's like the kind of journalism that Gonzo was re revolting against in mm -hmm. the first place. That's right. Or not revolting, but a reaction against. Mm -hmm. like, uh, better, right. better straight word. button down, just you know, that Joe Friday approach. Right. You know, where it's straight face, square jaw, piercing eyes. I will pilot and, you and safely you through the the maelstrom of headlines that might actually be what we need in the current weirdness because we don't have that we we don't have um that straight laced just the facts kind of people out there anymore mm -hmm. yep we, we have like uh you know it's it's all profit driven mm -hmm. sensationalism i mean just the fact that we have Trump as president, I've I've said it publicly. The media is like almost one hundred percent to blame because they need stories, so they like latch onto this douchebag and and you know make his stock go up and and mm -hmm. make his his fucking petty views known to everyone. Right, right. It's almost it's, like it's almost it's, like we have a Gonzo president. Right, because it sells, and and there's journ, and you know who cares about journalism? You care about the bottom line, advertising sales, you know, newspaper sales, that kind of thing, and even like the the you know the liberal papers, like traditionally liberal papers, like the Times or the Post or whatever, mm -hmm. um, you know, they just as are just as much to blame for it as as not, even though it's a maybe they're writing something negative, but they're still writing about it. It's still out there, and it's still part of the, the public consciousness. And it's like, why was that even seriously considered mm -hmm. a presidency by this fucking jerk? Right, right. And you have a point there. The whole, the whole of the system failed, and the outsider of the system is now Dan Rather. Yeah. Because he's the in, ultimate in, insider. The ultimate insider is now the ultimate outsider because every everything has gone crazy, and the you know very much the old expression of the lunatics running the asylum. Yeah. Wow. So yeah. I think I think that's probably that's probably the one thing about this film is that it spurred this part of the discussion. <laughs> so they go watch it. <laughs> Right. Go watch it. Because if you watch this film and you watch things like Thompson's antics and, you know, and go back and read some of the, the shit that he wrote about Nixon or, or just watch the scene uh, with the Nixon impersonator and Bill Murray in the bathroom. Yeah. And he goes into this long rambling screed about the screw heads and the doomed. Yeah. Fuck and you. And, yeah, and Nixon just turns out. He's like, "You don't want to know what I think of the doomed? Fuck the doomed!" 
<laughs> and that's that's really that is a was a big point they just crammed right into that movie right and and it's a lot more poignant in 1980 with nixon saying fuck the doomed mm. um well i guess it isn't because like right now pretty much everyone's doomed and and fuck the, Trump the administration is saying fuck the doomed fuck the doomed fucking bigly we have the best fucks for the doomed our doomed are the best doomed and we're gonna make the doomed great again yeah so there you have it a meandering take on where the buffalo roam meandering take for a meandering movie that's right uh if you get a chance to to watch this film, you know, I say give it a shot just to just think about it. Think about what what this movie could be and, you know, check the lighting for saliva marks on all the scenery. <laughs> because because I really do believe that uh every piece of every set in that film had Bill Murray or Peter Boyle's teeth marks all over it. Not the Rolling Stones set, because that was just Bruno Kirby. Right. Exactly. He was only in there. For, he wasn't in there long enough to have seen it. Made him pray. That's right. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. I, I can't do that. <laughs> it's, real, it's real easy. Just do what I do. So, until next week, um, oh, we actually have, we we have plans for next week. Next yeah, week we we'll be discussing uh, right. Robert E. Howard and the Solomon Kane story, the Moon of Skulls. Yes. So uh, yes, yeah. We will. If if you thought we got political on this one, wait. Yeah. <laughs> so I do. Right. Literally, actually, next week. There's going to be a lot of doom fucking next week. Oh, yes. <clears throat> Until next time, keep 30 luck points. Sayonara. <laughs>